Hello and welcome to episode 190 of NCP. NCP. It came from the P. <laughs> Hang on, Did that didn't quite work. <laughs> it needs your earth women. <laughs> what is the thing called kissing? <laughs> My name is David, and when we are the uh, now quite scared NCP crew, Richard. I am Richo from the P. <laughs> Luke. I come from the swamp of the harshest critics, so <laughs> I am the creature from the Black Lagoon. Awesome. Nice. Hey, Crystal. And see Granny's Peach Tea. <laughs> oh, very clever reference Whoa. to the Super 188. I like it. I like it. The look on Holly Hunter's face at that blur is like gold. I actually, I didn't. I forgot to say two weeks ago that I thought Holly Hunter was quite good. Yeah, but she's yeah. always good. But she was, and I forgot to say she was quite good, but wasted. Wasted. Yeah, it's interesting. Anyway. Um, <clears throat> I know how to wrestle a pig. For this episode, <laughs> we have our two dust jacket reviews. And then we also have a special uh, film radio novelization special review special thing. Review. <laughs> we'll be talking what? about film novelizations <laughs> and radio novelizations because that's what I like was yeah. But anyway, novelizations in general is what we'll be talking about. So, uh, yeah. I stuffed that up, but that's all right. I'm going to keep it in. Too it's la- funny. Too lazy to edit it out. <laughs> so, yes, as, uh, as, as our want... As is our one. I haven't said that for quite a few episodes. Uh, it's our two dust jackets. Let's get the ball rolling. Dust jacket number one. Richo and Luke will be reviewing Forever War by Joe Haldeman. The Forever War by Joe Haldeman. Thank you. Was uh, released in 1974 and won pretty much all the accolades that you can win as a science fiction novel. We won it, all the uh, awards! At the time. It won, at the time. It won the Nebula Award in 1975, and both the Hugo and Lucas Awards. It also spawned two sequels, written uh, in the 90s. And, really? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Forever, I've learned something. Forever Peace and Forever Free. Are they any good? I haven't read them yet. Have you read them? I've not read them either. Oh. No. Um, I don't see the point. There's also a novella called A Separate, uh, a Separate War, which sort of is a sequel of sorts, apparently. Um, but once again, I haven't actually read the rest of the series yet. But yes, it is a series. Gotcha. And for those keeping track on sci-fi lists, uh, The Forever War is ranked number 16. Ooh. Uh, directly in between Hyperion and Brave New World. It is above Hyperion, right? Uh, no. This it's not above... Wrong. It, it's 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 okay. It's not about Starship Troopers. <laughs> this list is so wrong. Okay, so the Forever War is um, it's a military science fiction novel, kind of a kind of an anti-war slant. Um, kind of. It. Well, it's it's not so much anti-war per se, in so far as war is bad. Um, it, it does centre. I should point out. It does centre around an interstellar war between humanity and this race called the Torans. But that's kind of incidental. What, as far as anti-war goes, what I'm looking at more is that it's more about the experiences of soldiers mm. in war and the disconnect that they have from um, the society that they live in before they go to war. Mm. Now, it should be pointed out that Joe Haldeman actually did go to war, mm. that he was a Vietnam vet, and you can tell that. You can see that what he's writing about is his own personal experiences mm. as a soldier 
really, I think, more than the war itself, but the return to America mm. as a soldier and how disconnected he was feeling from the, the society when he mm. did return. Um, because the novel uses, you know, its science fiction trappings to get that point across. These, these soldiers are travelling to this war. They're travelling for a certain period of time, but using, you know, Einstein's laws of physics... You know, years, decades, sometimes even centuries will pass on Earth mm. whilst months pass for the soldiers. So each time um, our main character, who is called William Mandela, each time he returns back home after a, a tour of duty, he's more and more removed from society. But then, um, the, the, then, then he goes back to the army and he still finds himself further disconnected for several yeah. reasons. There, one... One of those disconnects is that they've actually engineered their soldiers um, to have homosexual relations. Mm. And he actually finds that very hard to connect with because he is a heterosexual man. Um, and he finds that that actually dis- dis- that disconnects him further to um, uh, the unit that he's with. They actually, you know, because, of, because of that, he can't actually connect with them, which is dangerous for a, a unit. You want unity, not... Um, any sort of separation. Yeah, he, he then finds it hard to continue even going on this war that he's fought right from the very start, um, mm. uh, because he can't relate, or he can't. He doesn't feel like he can comfortably associate uh, with the soldiers that he's meant to be fighting with. Mm. He also finds too that, um, yeah, in the return to society, because homosexuality mm. becomes um, officially endorsed in society as mm. well, which puts this book far more progressive than you know Australia at the moment um, but homosexuality is officially endorsed to help overcome uh, overpopulation problems mm. and, and ba- basically all of the problems that were prevalent now that were also mm. major issues in the 70s um, but he also there's, there's, a, there's a great moment where he finds out that most of the people on earth don't really care about this war mm. i don't know why we're fighting the war no one can remember because mm. you know hundreds of years have passed yeah uh, and so you know the war's like oh, it's, it's happening out there what do we care down here yeah and that, but that's that's i think that's the basics of of, of what the story mm. tell, tells us here but but it is it's less of a of a plot per se mm. as in this happens to the character then this happens and more a reflection as i said on helderman's experiences as a soldier his disconnect from society, as you say, his disconnect from the very um, institution that he was a part of. And to me, that's what makes this book absolutely fascinating. It, it's almost um, it's almost the counterpoint to uh, Starship Troopers, which we reviewed um, a few episodes back. Um, a lot of people actually do make that comparison. They say, um, this, is the, this is the opposite end. And a lot of people yeah. actually say this is this is the end that we actually want. We don't want Starship Troopers because of all its gung ho trappings. Um, we want this because it actually does attempt to look a bit beyond that and look at what's actually going on to going mm-hmm. on with these um, uh, these men, both on the battlefield and in um, in the world they find themselves uh, re-inhabiting. Um, it, it's it's telling the start. It starts off. As you would expect, most mili- this is military SF. You can't. Deny yeah, absolutely, that. no doubt about um, that. You, you but, go through basic training. Mm-hmm. You go th- like people are killed in basic training, mm-hmm. and everyone's like, "Well, they're dead." Who yeah. cares? But it's also the horrific ways they're manipulated in basic training as well, and the yeah. the overt reactions that they have. Their commanding officer. It starts off with their commanding officer walking into their um into their barracks, 
and um, you know, instead of instead of you know, halting to attention, the first thing they say, and this is um, an absolute given amongst the stories, is "F you, sir. F you." Yeah, that's that's just the way that they greet their commanding officers, and then in the battlefield. Um, the commanding officers also whispering uh, subliminal messages into their ears to pump them up so much that they can can do nothing but fight um, the enemy. That they don't have much choices on the battlefield. They can't um, retreat if they if they feel they need to. All they can do is go and kill. And then it's you know when he comes down and then realizes that you know that's actually not a great way to be. But I've got nothing else outside of that. That's what Mandela's story is so invigorating it's yeah. it's it's it is a purely character driven story yeah. as richo said it's not strongly based in plot it's strongly based on how our character yeah. is coping with the world around him um added into the fact is the fact that he's he's one of the few people to actually see this war right from the start through to the end yeah. um because of the relativistic effects of time of space travel yeah without well, explaining yeah. probably why it's so hard to adapt like yeah. really, really yeah. Scott's been trying to adapt this for years. Yeah, look, there, there, there could be difficulties there, but um, I actually think this is probably the best time to adapt it, though, mm. because we are, you know, we've, we're finding ourselves in a prolonged war in the Middle East that has no end in sight and no real, there is no exit strategy from mm. this situation that we're in now. So I think, yeah, this is the time to get that message out yeah, there to show the effects a, but of But it's that. a lot of introspective... You know, thinking, and there's not really a lot, a lot of plot. I think like, there, are, there? there there are ways to do that, though. Mm. Um, okay. Also, also given that there there has been an attempt over the last sort of twenty years to make you know war films. I'll say thirty years, um, maybe even further if you want to go back to Apocalypse Now and things like that, to make more realistic war films. And one of the things I'll say about this book, unlike say Starship Troopers, where there's no glorification here of of of, of being in battle, mm. it's like Haldeman's taken his experience of what it's like, you know, being in the middle of a of, of a war zone with people shooting everywhere, and like it, the, the, he doesn't gloss over any of that. Mm. It's like this is what being in a battlefield is actually like. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I think you know, like like this thin, is thin red lines sort of stuff. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, um, Saving Private Ryan. Um, like I said, go, going back to things like Apocalypse Now, where it's like, yeah, this is what war's really like. Forget, your, forget your John Wayne, you know, you know, guts and glory kind of mm. film. I mean, the, the, the telling at the very last battle, and this is not a spoil, not a, not spoiling anything because there's nothing mm. um, really major to spoil. The last battle becomes a battle of attrition almost. Yeah, mm. you know, they go from yeah. sophisticated weaponry to having to pick up swords because. And the enemy goes through the same thing as well, because the war has been fought for so long, um, the resources, the resources are, are so yeah. so diminished. Yeah. But they are the, a, a truce hasn't been declared, a ceasefire hasn't been declared. They still have to fight. Um, there is still an enemy to take out, and they, they really it's really what they've got left to hand that they have to go with. One thing that I will say about the film adaptation: if anybody could do it, it is Ridley Scott, who has had the rights for years. To make this book, um, if anybody could pull it off, um, I, I think Scott is the one that could do it. I mean, he, he look at what he did with The Martian. One mm. man stuck on Mars. Yeah, on an interesting Spoiler. note. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> on, on an interesting note, um, you know, we were referring to Starship Troopers earlier. Um, apparently, Robert Heinlein, after reading this novel, actually wrote a letter to Joe Haldeman congratulating him. On his first of all, on his winning the award and on the actual novel itself, which Haldeman said actually meant more to him than winning the award. Um, 
And according to, is it Spider Robinson? Is that the yeah. writer? According to Spider Robinson, um, Heinlein actually approached Holderman at, at the Nebula Awards banquet and said that, um, and I've got the quote here, that uh, this may be the best future war story I've ever read. So, you know, well, whilst we're, we're making the comparisons and pe- you know, listeners will remember uh, the rather scathing <laughs> review we gave Starship Troopers, um, Heinlein appreciated this novel as much as we clearly do as well. So I just wanted to sort of bring that point up as a little cool. little, little tidbit. I don't have really much more to say about this novel other no. than um, I thought this book was brilliant. Mm. You know, the, the, the autobiographical nature of it had me so so invested in Mandela as a character. Mm. And you could just you could see that this was Holderman's experiences put into when this. When was this written? Seventy four. Okay. Was uh, Nelson Mandela Yes, during this period. Well, Nelson Mandela was in prison at this period. He was in period. I I did actually think, um, yeah, that perhaps the name was chosen deliberately as. um, Well, I know, I know, he was alive, obviously, but was he doing his freedom fighter stuff? Well, he he, he'd done his freedom fighter stuff, been arrested, and was in prison, and and so I get the feeling that yeah, maybe the the Mandela name was chosen deliberately, Mm, but I I haven't actually found out anything to sort of yay or nay that one specifically, Mm. but. um, so yeah, so I just want to say um, I thought this book was astonishing. So I'm going to give this book four and a half looks. It's absolutely brilliant. I recommend anybody who is a science fiction fan or even you know an anti-war person read this book because it just sums up perfectly the experience as I think of a soldier. Um, I first read this novel uh, 16 years ago now, and this is one of the ones that you know started me on reading science fiction um, to begin with. You know, this stars my destination, then June and um, the like, you know, the reason why I am a fan of literary science fiction um, is because of, in part, this book. Um, and I probably wouldn't be sitting here today talking about books the way that I do. Um, so, yeah, I agree fully with Richo. Um, I give this four and a half looks. Really? I started it, I didn't like it. You know that the you read it, they didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I mean, you know, it just wasn't the kind of story I was interested in reading at the time, I guess. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. I, I bought this book and actually had it on the shelf for a while because I just wasn't in the, I, I, I sort of had a rough idea what it was about. I just wasn't in the right frame of mind to be reading that, you know. In the same way, I made the, I made the comparison earlier, Apocalypse Now. If you're going to sit down and watch Apocalypse now, you've got to be in the right frame of mind. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to kill yourself. Yeah, basically. Not quite Jude level, but yeah. pretty close. Oh, it's, it's up there. Raging Bull, Jude, Midnight Express. There's you know, Schindler's List. There's, there's a list you could put together of the 10 most depressing films. That's one of my favourite movies when you and I watched Jude. We just, like, we just looked at each other. Like, what the fuck? It's a great film, but... My God, it starts downbeat and goes down let's from ch- there. Let's chuck a little mermaid on now because yeah. we need something to pick us back up again. Uh, it was pretty bad. Uh, With the road, I'd put in that category. Yeah, oh, it, that's depressing yeah. as hell. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. That's also bad, the road, but that's not. That's why I get depressed. A must read. <laughs> it sounds really like I'm just, just reading from a script. <laughs> it's terrific. <laughs> awesome. Let's move on to Dust Jacket number two, uh, which is the uh, traditionally the crew pick. It's this time it's my pick, and I'm going to be reviewing it with my lovely wife Crystal, and uh, who is lovely? 
Uh, so we are going to be reviewing uh, Luke's Christmas gift to me, which was Welcome to Night Vale, a novel by Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Cranor. Now, Welcome to Night Vale is based on a podcast, a very popular podcast called Welcome to Night Vale, uh, which deals with, uh, it basically it posits the idea that uh, all the world's conspiracy theories um, and sort of crackpot theories exist for real in this small town in America. Um I believe Arizona. It's never actually stated. Oh, I think yeah. the Mo actually no, does say no, it. it. Doesn't say. Oh anyway, all right. The, the, well, it's, it's very, a, very Arizona-like. Yeah, <laughs> very, very, yeah very yeah. Nevada-ish. But it, you know, there's yeah. always this, always this whole thing about where actually is it? Where exactly are we? Okay, anyway, so, so yeah, so all the conspiracies are actually true, and so it it does what I think is one of that, that, that cool. I, I love that sort of that the walled universe deal where mm. all the literary figures exist in our world, all you know, and it all kind of tries to make sense of it all, and so it does the same sort of thing for here, and so and. Uh, the people who are born and grow up uh, grow up in Night Vale just con- consider this as you know part of the course. It's mm. just natural. I mean, glowing lights in the sky actually makes a lot of sense, and uh, the fact that there's uh, you know whether mountains exist or not is a is a, a topic for debate. And and uh, mountains don't exist. Mountains I, don't exist. I believe I believe in mountains. <laughs> um, and uh, you know the shadowy the shadowy figures in the in the uh, impalers that are that are listening to and no- noting down your conversations is all just perfectly natural. But they're there um, for our protection, exactly, and uh, and the secret police that isn't really all that secret and all that sort of stuff. So, and so at first glance, this is the book for me. I mean, it's it, I mean, it's practically it might as well say on the front cover, David, read this book, and. Uh, and I'm disappointed to, to say that it's... I mean, I'm, I'm disappointed for various reasons, but actually, this book just did not do it for me at all. Um, and I've actually also listened to a couple of the podcasts yeah. as well to sort of think maybe... Because I, I thought, maybe it's just the book. Mm. Maybe I just don't like the prose. Yep. You know what I mean? And so I'll sort of listen to a couple of the episodes and stuff. And I do I do say that I actually I prefer the podcast. Yeah. But even that doesn't really do it for me. So let me tell you the story about reading this book. Now... I, I can't just say, I got... One chapter in, and knew you were going to hate it. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, so, let me just, so let me just say about the books. Now, I got to page nineteen. So very specifically, I got to yep. page nineteen, and a certain event happened, and I threw the book back into my bag and said, "Fuck this book! I've got better things to do with my time." Now, I actually said this out loud <laughs> on the train. Right? I got better things to do, and I spoke to Crystal about it because Crystal and I review it, and Crystal read the whole thing. Um, Crystal about it, and. And I was debating whether to give it the 100-page rule, mm-hmm. our 100-page sort of rule. And, and Crystal said, well, how about our new 49-page rule, the 49 pages that, the I, iTunes, that page. iTunes gives you for free when you, okay. when you, do it, when you get, download a book, right? I was like, all right, as a compromise, I'll do 49 pages. So my next experience reading this book, I missed my stop because I, I was so into it, what was happening, that I actually missed my train stop, had to get off, Cross to the other side, come back again, right? <laughs> and that was that was up to page sixty-seven. Right? So I'm at page sixty-seven at this point, and I'm mm-hmm. thinking, this book's fucking awesome. <laughs> right? So yep. I got to to, to uh, chapter eight, in fact. <laughs> then I, I started by reading. I'm like, oh, this book's awesome! I can't wait to get back to it. You know, I finished my working day. I, you know, I'm bringing bringing home the bacon. I go, <laughs> I'm coming home. I start reading this book again. I get to page hundred and eleven, and I'm like, nah. This is not doing it for me, <laughs> right? But I was thinking, oh, I'll give it, I'll give it, Crystal finish it off, I'll give it another go. This is the the the, uh, the long rambling story of how I'm reading this book. 
Then I read the library sequence. Yep. Which I thought was magnificent. I was like, finally, finally, something is happening that has just, just blown my mind. The library stuff, mainly because of also my personal connection to libraries. I, I was about say, to say we have a librarian yes. among us. I did say to you, you have to get, at least get to the library. Yeah, and, I mean, I'm tweeting, I'm tweeting Crystal a quote from the thing, because you know, Crystal is, in fact, a librarian. So, so I, I, I mean, I had a bit of a, you know, an emotional connection to that. I just, it was magnificent mm. stuff. So I'm thinking, all right, this, well, obviously now I'm on fire. Uh, but I regret to say that I didn't actually finish this book. Now, there's a couple of reasons. Yep. One, because everything after the library sequence, I just don't care anymore. Like the tan mm. man, the suitcase guy, yeah, Evan or Evan or Ethan or whatever the hell his name it ends up turns to be, I just don't care. You know what I mean? And that's the basic mm. basic plot of the film. And also the multiple Troys that you see, yeah. again, I just don't give a shit. Mm. Now, so I actually ended up on page 264. That's as far as I got. All right. Um, now, the other reason that I actually lost interest is because Daredevil Season 2 came out. <laughs> I just started watching that. So, you know, so, to, so I, do, I do need to point out that it's not entirely the book's fault. Yeah. It's just that I was just... Distracted. I was, I was distracted by something yeah. else as well. So, um, but I, I mean, I gave it as, as much as a go as I, as I, as I possibly could. Now, yeah. the couple of things that I, did, that I did really, really like about this book was... The library sequence. Yeah. Magnificent. Yes. Mainly because of, yes, my connection to it. And because of the Cthulhu-esque type stuff that was happening mm. in there. Loved it. Loved it from start to finish. Bring. The other thing that I really, really liked about it, actually, was a non-supernatural thing element, which was the relationship between uh, Diane... Diana. ...and her son. Yeah. Um, now, the son... The shape-shifting son thing, mm. I thought was about as subtle as a smack in the face. Mm. Like, there's, you know, the teenager going through changes, all that sort of stuff. I was like, come on. Who gives a shit? The son I didn't care about at all. But what I really liked was the just the very realistic interplay between a single mother and her teenage son who's yeah. going through the changes and... and it was just the way they sort of interacted, just the, just the very standard, you know, whether it was okay to say I love you mm. and, and just sort of the actual standard interactions. Mm. Not, nothing supernatural in any way. Yeah. I really, really liked it. I thought that was, very, that was excellently done. And, the, and I'll be frank with you, the only reason why I continued reading mm. um, was I thought, well, I'm going to get more of this and stuff. The actual mystery of the guy, you know, the, the guy that hands out the piece, indestructible pieces of paper yeah, the man that could the- not give a shit. Right? I just don't care. I just, and even now I don't care. Mm. The, you know, the multiple Troys, meh. I don't see why she's all that surprised. <laughs> it's like, it's, I mean, you look at the city that you live in. Yeah. Right. So, and you know, and who, how, who he actually eventually turns out to be. Again, I don't care. I actually haven't even researched to find out, you know, how this book ends because I just don't give a crap. Um, and also, just find I just just found the as much as I love the idea of a town where all the conspiracy theory sort of stuff. You know, it's very Twin Peaksy, mm. you know, sort of stuff. All the all the conspiracy stuff, which I love. The idea of it, I love. Yeah. I just didn't. I just could not get into the the writing. Mm. I guess the only other sort of aspect of it that I quite enjoyed was the radio announcer guy, Cecil. Yeah. Um, so not really, not, not really because of that. So that old sort of that old trope of the radio announcer guy. Mm. I mean, it's you know, northern exposure or what sort of type of stuff. Yeah. But more because just the very matter of fact way that things are mentioned. Mm. It's like uh, you know, I mean, this is not the actual line, but it's all very much the. Oh no, no. What I, one of my favourites was the. One of the councilmen, or maybe yeah, one of the council people is a cloud. Yep. 
a radioactive cloud or some shit. The glow cloud. Yeah, the glow cloud, and you know, and all hail the glow cloud is how the t- you know ends. You know, and and I, I thought that was hilarious. Mm. So the so the the radio announced stuff I thought was quite quite funny. Yeah. And but unfortunately, there really isn't enough of it. But then read then listening to the episodes, understood why that happens. Mm. Um, so that sort of stuff. But yeah, I guess. But I guess the the general failure of this book for me is is and I have to stress that for me. Yeah. Is I just I just could not get into. I just didn't care enough about the mystery or the style of writing. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned Northern Exposure because I got sort of a chapter in and that's actually what this reminded me of. It's like um, it, it's, it's, it's if the, the quirky town of Sicily multiplied by a factor of 10, mm. basically. Mm. Um, and, and, and I just know how much you despise quirkiness. Yeah. And, I wouldn't necessarily say I despise quirkiness, but I just... Yeah, quirky. This is not for me. And yeah, and, and it's just so. Oh, I don't think David's really going to like this all that much. But on the other hand, um, I do like quirkiness, and uh, and I, I, I can't say this is the best book I've ever read, but I quite enjoyed it. And I, yeah, like I enjoyed it enough to get to the end. Yeah, I guess. I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't mind a little bit of quirk, mm. but sometimes it just takes it to extremes. Now, I'll give you an example, right? So, page nine was when I put it down and said, "Fuck this book." Yep. All right. Page nineteen is. Uh, Diane is teaching her son how to drive. Now, up until this point, you've had a bit of quirk, and you know the Kin City and the paper that disappeared, you know, mm. and you know, and the uh, the girl that runs the pawn shop and how that system operates and stuff. Yeah. At this point, I'm like, why the fuck do you need to take the doors off its hinges? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. I lock it and then I remove it and then I hide it. It's like you know that sort of stuff kind of irritates me, right? Then we get to page 19, and to give you an idea of how my brain sort of works. You've got a shape shift in Josh, mm-hmm. and you know, and like, yeah, well, you know, like I said, it's not very subtle. But then he's teaching him how to drive, and the car, the way that the way that sort of the, the the writing works is that you've got very mundane, normal stuff in sort of interjected with quirky stuff. Mm. And at first, it takes a little bit to get used to. It's mm. like it's, 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 it's just, it'll be just describing, you know, and we're walking down the street, and the sky was blue, and uh, and. Uh, an alien run past me and it was George and I said hello you know it's something to that effect right it's in, and so it, kind of t- it takes a bit but anyway so she's tra- teaching him how to drive this car and we had this description here where Diane's task of teaching her son to drive took additional patience not because of Josh's insistence on constant reassessment of his physical identity but also because the car was a manual transmission imagine teaching a 15 year old how to drive a car with manual transmission so yes in real life manual was harder than automatic first you have to press down the clutch then you have to whisper a secret into one of the cup holders. <laughs> in Diane's case, this was easy, as she was not a very social or public person, and the most and most any mundane thing in her life could be a secret. And then it just goes on from there. Now that is actually the point where I just said, "Fuck it, I just don't have time for this shit." So, and, and what I find interesting is the fact that you guys just laughed at it. So it's clearly designed for laughter, yeah, and and all that sort of stuff. But it just there's something about my brain is sort of twigged where I was just like, I just. It's just too much. Mm. It's just too much quirk. And then later yeah. on, you hear, you find out later on that in... Uh, which I thought was quite a funny, but um, the pawn shop's girl's car has no engine. It's just a crate of rocks. Yep. And she takes it to get repaired. And the, and the mechanic's like, but there's no engine. How does this car even move? It's just a crate of rock. And then walks away weeping, which I thought was quite funny. Right? <laughs> because I was like, as visual, I was like, <laughs> he's just so distraught. <laughs> but then I thought, but you live in this city. How is this weird to you? Why are you so distraught? Mm. You should be just a matter of course. And so then, of course, then I got angry again. And I'm like, well, I'm not reading this book anymore. <laughs> and so, so that's how my brain is sort of back and forth to, I can see what they're trying to say, but it's just not for me. 
<laughs> so, Luke, you yourself. So, as you, as you, I mean, as I said, okay. you bought this for me, so you've read it, obviously. You're I've read it, and I'm a huge fan of it. Cool. Um, first of all, you know, getting back to that whole brain, the what, the rewiring of the brain thing. My brain is actually skewed to um, weird, offbeat, absurd sense of absurd sensibilities. Mm. You know, big fan of Monty Python, big fan of the Goon Show, love Looney Tunes. Um, so that's the thing, but so am I. But. When you when you watch all that stuff, what do you respond to? Because my big thing is, if it's weird, I generally tend to love it. Yeah. Um, See, I don't mind weird. And that's just it. You don't mind weird. Yeah. Whereas I respond more to weird. All right, okay, well, I guess this is a perfect example, right? Yeah. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah. It ends mm. <laughs> with them being arrested for murder. Yep. And the film just comes to a close. Yep. The very first time I saw that, yep. I actually said... What the fuck is happening here? Whereas you... Love it. Exactly, right? Yeah. Now, of course, I love it. Yeah. Now, of course, I understand it yeah. and, and, and love it. But I saw it as a, young, as a younger person, let me be honest. I, I, <laughs> I remember the same reaction from you with The Big Lebowski. Yeah. Oh, The Big when Lebowski's we, the best of the best reaction. Yeah, when, 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 when we first watched The Big Lebowski, you despised it. I actually got angry. You did. I was like, why have you wasted my time yeah. with this shit? And yet, if we jump 20 years ahead <laughs> to the Waldo of today, who has, you know, become a member of the discovered Church of Deuterology. The, discovered, discovered the Little Lebowski shop in exactly. the Village. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it's like that. It, it, I think it takes you a while to embrace the absurd in a lot of these sort of things. I guess that's what it is. I think, yeah, uh, no, Richard's well, right. That's a perfect example. And I, I, I cling to that. I, you know, when you, when you, you know, you, you throw the book down, yeah. um, because, because she has to whisper a secret into the, into the, into the engine to get it going. For yeah, me, yeah. I was going, this is awesome. The bit that I just went, I have to keep reading, um, was the first, um, the first word from our sponsor by Cecil. Yes. Um, going into this whole spiel about Pepsi and you know how empty life is, and you know you're questioning um, what the fri- you're, you're questioning the contents of your fridge, and everything seems to be laughing, and your shower has lost faith in you. Yeah. Um, so the sponsor, yeah. you know, goes into you know just what is that you're eating? Pepsi, drink Coke. Yeah. Um, that was a bit. I, I've got to keep reading this, and I must admit, I looked forward to, uh, and I do like you. I agree. I think I wanted more of the Cecil. Yeah. Um, the Cecil moments, the voice of Night Vale moments, because I thought they were brilliant. Yeah. Um, and I have. Although it makes sense that there isn't more. And it makes sense in the context of the novel. Yeah. Um, because you can't do that for two hundred pages. Yeah, that'd be pointless. Yeah. Um, but having said that, I actually have become, and I must admit, I wasn't a fan. I didn't. I knew what the podcast was, but I hadn't listened to it. Mm. Um, so I came into this like fresh faced. Um, and but have now become a big fan of the podcast, mm. and I'm about sixty episodes into it. Um, Jesus. <laughs> um, and How many episodes is there? Uh, so, uh, counting is about 84. Right, okay. Because uh, it's still going. Yeah. Um, that's how popular this has become. A huge... Mm. I can see why it's popular. Mm. I can definitely see it. The production um, values are very high. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so... And seeing, seeing you know, the beginnings of the Man with the Tan Jacket storyline and, you know, Diane Creighton pops up here and there. Um, in the in the show in the show okay not as a character as you know so, uh, you know uh, one of the things is she's also on the PTA and at one point she comes to a great epiphany and then spends the next um, th- and then apparently goes into a you know almost like a fetal position type uh, thing of self reclamation this is all told for us through Cecil very you get the occasional guest appearance but Cecil is the one who tells the story of the community 
Um, so these characters exist in the show itself because like, the, epi- the two episodes I listened to didn't have Diane or Diane the, comes later or the pawn shop girl um, whatever her name is. Jackie Fierro really yeah. comes is introduced when they are started to work on the novel because they actually uh, say we're writing the novel and then they introduce Jackie in that episode gotcha um, or is the man with the tan jacket stuff is there from episode three I think there um, and right. this is how they sort of tie really? it off really yeah and he's okay. and all. It, all he is is he's a guy who's going around. Wait, spoiler alert! No, not spoiler alert. Okay. As in, as in, all he is is, is, a, is a guy going around, um, the town, doing weird things that either seem to hinder the town or benefit the town. But no one can remember what he. No, no one can remember oh, him other than. So the King City thing is is just part of that. He's actually doing other stuff. He's doing other stuff, but all that stuff with King City is actually introduced in the novel. Gotcha. At least so far, where I am. I found uh, the parts I liked the least were actually the Cecil bits because it took me outside of, um, like, I'd just get interested in the narrative of the mm. story and then Cecil would come along. Mm. Um, uh, sometimes parts of the narrative were woven into what he was saying and sometimes mm. not. So it sort of jolted me out of the story a little bit. And even though I'm a big fan of quirkiness, I mean, I love Northern Exposure, I love Twin Peaks, um, and, you know, I love weirdness, but sometimes I think this book crammed a little bit too much quirkiness and too much weirdness in it just for the sake of it. Mm. Um, sometimes it was just a, a little bit too over the top, and I can, I can see what would have turned David off. Overall, I, mean, I enjoyed it, and I'm glad I got to the end and found out the resolution of what was happening with Diane and the Troys and Evan or whatever his name was. Mm. Um yeah, I think it, they needed to, to, to tone tone down the the quirk a little bit too. Much. The, the tone of the book just got a bit lost in the quirk sometimes. Yeah, that, that's yeah. exactly what I think. Yeah, I think there was just is if I think I would have been more interested in the plot if it'd been less quirk. You know, I love I love book. I mean like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for example has a silly thing happening for no real reason. Uh, like for instance the alien has that has to go around and tell everybody off everybody in the universe off. He has to you know, <laughs> well, hurl an insult at him. It doesn't but, distract from after the story. It doesn't mm. distract from the story which is in here. Sometimes it's so so much silliness mm. packed into one page it just is sort of you're a little bit over it. Mm. Okay, I still mm. thank you for introducing me to the, to it, and you know, and and uh, it wasn't a total disaster, and I and I think I might actually go and finish it off. You know, maybe maybe I will, but I do actually prefer the show to be honest. Here, so I might. I prefer listen. I I prefer the show yeah, as well. I might have to listen to more of the show. The show, I think they might have written themselves into a corner because the show actually has a couple of big storylines running through it right. uh, in the show itself that get resolved by the time this opens up. That's Is it done pro- like a radio play? No, it, mm. no. It's it, what it is is that it's um, a community radio station, and he is doing you know the weekly. This is what's going on in the town, okay. you know, type thing. So you know Cecil. Um, it's it, all Cecil. It's all Cecil, with occasionally the odd guest star, like um, like Carlos does. You know, speak mm. to him from time comes it, it phones in or you know calls him from another dimension and speaks to him from time to time, and um, you know Will Wheaton shows up at one point. Oh. Okay, on that note, let's move on. So, um. Actually, I was um, kind of interested when Luke first gave me the book, I was kind of interested to look at the podcast, but after having read the book, I'm kind of, I didn't really want to go to oh, the podcast. Well, as a person who actually even finished the book, um, I recommend the podcast. Mm. Yeah, I do. But the Cecil parts were my least favourite bits. 
Oh, that's a good point. You're a smart lady. <laughs> Podcast is not for you. <laughs> um, yeah, so I just feel I feel that I, I probably shouldn't really rate it because no, I, you can rate, you I haven't really rate, finished no, it. But you've read enough and you've got had enough of a reaction to... Okay, well, it just wasn't for me. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. 2.5 looks. That's fair. I just threw that out there. I get, I'll give it a 3. Okay, cool. Was like, overall, I quite enjoyed it. I was just a bit... Yeah, as I say, like the one line is one after another a bit much at some point. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. That's our dust jackets. Hope you enjoyed them. Richard, what will be our next sci-fi list novel? Our next book uh, will be The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein, who came up in this episode, strangely <laughs> enough. So, uh, yeah, we'll be revisiting Heinlein again. Awesome. And our crew pick is... Me. Luke. <laughs> <laughs> Me. You had to say who you were. <laughs> there is one thing you do not put in a trap. Um, and it's high time that we, I think, we look at possibly the most popular uh, speculative fiction novel ever. Um, I think it's time we do Lord of the Rings. Oh, well, then I'm doing Boone. You know, Lord of the Rings is actually the <laughs> was, was voted the number one greatest book of all time by people in Australia. They had an entire television special to tell uh, us that. Well, since I've read it four and a half times, I think I'll do a lot of the rest. Okay, yeah, I'm doing Moon. For sure then. So it'll be Richard and myself doing Moon as a Harsh Mistress. And, uh, Luke Are we and... doing the whole trilogy or just... Um, I say do the whole, tri- the whole trilogy, but um, keep it brief for the story. What's well, about a midget throwing a ring into a volcano? The Eagles, man! <laughs> Just use the fucking eagles! I've had a rough day. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah. Luke and the two crazy people, Luke and Grizzle, are doing Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that's right. We're <laughs> doing the most one of the most popular novels of all time. Oh, I'm not saying I don't love it. Whereas we're doing... I'm not going to read three <laughs> books to do it. I don't need to read it again. I don't need to read three books either. <laughs> I, I'm never reading that book ever again. All right. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you love it, but you're never reading that book. Ever. Although I might finish the last no. half of it just to equalise them off. Look, I don't, I'm not saying I don't. I'm not saying I don't admire it for what it's accomplished, mm-hmm. and and I do, I do love it. But there are some parts of it that I hate. That's it's a love heart, love hate relationship. And I guess it's so, Yeah, every, anything involving Legolas is terrible. So uh, yeah, mm, so I'm interesting debate anyway. that one. <laughs> cool. Moving on, we're up to our special. Dust Jacket book review special review thing. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to be talking about novelizations. Let's, let's walk down memory lane. Let me tell you a little bit about younger, younger David. Younger Waldo. Um, I read a lot as a child. Um, I didn't have a, a lot of friends, so I read a, I read a lot of books. But unfortunately, doesn't. oh, <laughs> but, <laughs> unfortunately, my reading list was uh, not the greatest um, until I met Miss um, Baxter, who was a library a librarian at the time. My reading got, this was, isn't going in an uncomfortable way, is it? Well, she was hot. Oh, <laughs> so, but anyway, uh, no, before I met Miss Baxter, who sort of introduced me to a wider reading uh, reading range, my books. My reading books uh, were, were constricted to Sweet Valley High, the target range of Doctor Who novelizations, and film novelizations. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't a big range. <laughs> Sweet Valley High. 
high. I read Sweet Valley High. Dude, I was in. I was into those dogs like a madman, and I wasn't ashamed either. I didn't care. But I didn't have a lot of friends. That probably explains why. <laughs> <laughs> People walked past. I was reading a Sweet Valley High book. They were like, "What the hell, man?" Um, but yeah, the dog two novelizations as well, and uh, yeah, and just and film novelizations. And one of the th- and um, one of the things that I really loved about film novelizations was um, what I would what I would, would try to do would be to either see the film and then read the novel or read the novel and then see the film and then sort of just sort of discuss also you know, in my own mind because I had no friends the you know the differences you know it's like wow oh, look at all the, you know, the weird sort of things and like how the, the books would flesh them out and sort of stuff like that so anyway that made me sound like a complete loser that uh, that thing but that's right that's, that's quite alright I'm, I'm cool with it, it makes are you, you sound, about to say something mean it makes you sound no, like a, a lovely sensitive little child <laughs> okay when, when you when you were when you were young do you Young Dave. Uh, so yeah, so um, yeah, so novelization is uh, uh, the the book form of you know TV, radio, film, that sort of stuff, uh, and video games nowadays. You know, you even get you know novelizations of video games, um, and they're often written uh, based on the first screenplay, and so they're written before any sort of changes are made on set as well as, you know, uh, secondary, secondary drafts and stuff. And they're also often written very quickly. Like, they have to be done in a certain period of time in order to get out and sort of help promote the film. They help promote the film as well as, you know, as class of sort of merchandise of the film. And they're actually quite lucrative. Uh, according to um, Hollywood, uh, about 2% of the cinema audience will buy the novelizations. And that doesn't sound... That may not sound like a lot, but two percent of a hundred million dollars mm. is still a lot, quite a bit of money, considering mm. how cheap they they are to produce. Mm. I mean, they give they give some you know some. I was going to say hack writer, but that's actually a horrible thing to say. But they give some, they give some writer. Sometimes it's a hack writer. Yeah, you know, five hundred bucks to produce this book, mm. and then bam, they make you know millions of dollars. They've done it right. Do they do they um, ever elaborate on why um, the audience would go and buy? The novelization for that very reason, I just that I described my lonely childhood is uh, to sort of think, sort of compare it, sort of sort of flesh oh, out the story. Yeah, you want to flesh out. That's the reason why I went back to read novelizations, as um, as I'll talk later on, that you to fill out gaps in some of the stories. Cool. Yeah. So um, yeah, so I'm a big fan. And I know you're not, so I'd be very interested to find out why. But after I've done the history, <laughs> so novelizations began to be produced in the 20s. Believe it or not, can you believe that? I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. One of the first talking movies to be novelised was King Kong in 1933. Mm. It's a King Kong novelisation. I've got to find it. I've got to track that down. But then uh, they really hit their stride in the 70s around um, home video sort of stuff because then people had immediate access. They would watch the film, read the book, you know, straight away sort of stuff. So in the 70s, they really started to kick ass. Um, specifically, uh, like, well, most most popular of those times were Star Wars mm-hmm. or the, the Adventures of Luke Skywalker. Um, and Alien, uh, probably the two of the most best-selling novelizations ever, um, and I own them both. Uh, Star Wars is is fascinating because it is written from a first draft. Well, there's, there's a, you know, depending on who you believe, there's about a billion drafts of Star Wars. Um, the first draft, but of the first draft the of the that, shooting that lead, yeah, that leads to the, 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 the story that's on screen. Yeah, so it's not it's not uh, despite uh, popular, there's a myth out there saying that it's actually based on the Legends of Starkiller um, draft. Uh, but it's actually not. It's really it's based on the first shooting draft. Mm. But even then, there is quite a lot of changes. Mm. Um, I mean, bigs. I mean, obviously, all the stuff that was cut out um, is actually is all is all it's back in there. That. So the visit to Anchorhead to pick up the power converters and stuff mm. is all there. Bigs and his friends and all that sort of stuff. Um, and Bigs is 
a major player. Like mm. Biggs is actually quite. Biggs is actually possibly the best influence Luke has. Mm. I mean, he's actually he's, he gives he's probably the one that gives the most practical advice. Like it is one thing where he's teaching him how to what the actual controls of the next win are. Mm. I guess like, busy the game of lies. <laughs> yeah, also, that's right. Everyone's too busy lying. But also telling him, you know, that the empire's actually not all it's cracked up to. That's be, right. And yeah, yeah. that the rebellion is, you know, he's kind of radicalizing Luke these days. But, yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty cool. And the novelization of Alien sort of uh, introduces um, a little bit more backstory for the people on the the, the crew of the Nostromo. Mm. And sort of, and gives you a little bit, a bit more hints about what the alien mm. creature is actually up to, yeah. and stuff like that. It's, it's actually quite a lot more intelligent than that it's betrayed in the film, mm. um, which is later retconned. But that's right. Um, so, yeah. But then, but novelizations still continue to this to this day. Um, I, mean, I mean, I've got Star Wars: The Force Awakens in my hand right here, and uh, uh, they're still, you know, very, very popular. In fact, the novelization—I don't understand this—but the novelization for God, the twenty fourteen version of Godzilla. Was on the New York Times bestseller list. Maybe because people were looking something better than the film. <laughs> but the best thing about the film was Godzilla's appearances. Look, it's a hard one to, to answer. <laughs> I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But hey, it is what it is. About fifty percent of novelizations are sold to people who have watched the film and want to explore its characters further or reconnect to the enthusiasm they experience when watching the film. Mm. So there you go. When I was reading this, I had the soundtrack running. <laughs> sort, of, sort of just get me in the mood stuff. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, they also can help for pub- uh, you know, publicity and stuff like that. But then nowadays, with this, you know, this this spoiler, what's the word? It's like this anti-spoiler sort of hysteria that it's, that uh, people get with these mm. days. Um, the Force Awakens level was actually delayed until the film came out, mm. so that it wouldn't, you know, therefore spoil things. Obviously, the death of a certain character, but. Yeah. I mean, only two percent of the people. Only two percent are actually buying. Isn't that more of the internet age as well? Once upon a time, you know, mm. um, you would have got, you would have bought it or borrowed it from the library. You would have yeah. read it, and you might have told your friends. Yeah. Um, whereas these days, you, you, borrow, on the internet. you go onto the internet, and you have massive rants as to you know what can happen. So yeah. I don't know if it's the anti-spoiler hysteria so much as well, isn't the that, social. That's part of it. It's part of it, but I think it's also. Um, being fully aware of what social media yeah. can do. Yeah, 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 you're totally right. You said that better than I did. Mm. Uh, the writer of a novelization is supposed is supposed to multiply the words of the screenplay, which is usually around twenty five thousand words, to about sixty thousand words mm. to novel, you know, novel length. Um, so to do that, they uh, they take it upon themselves to add things from their own from themselves from their own experience as well as from notes that you know that the filmmakers have actually done. Some of them actually also have access to the set and so you can pick up some sort of stuff from there. Uh, but that doesn't happen all that often because I mean to give you an idea. So Max Collins had to write in the line of fire in nine days. <laughs> <laughs> so you know he was like what? So in that so in that respect, they can actually be quite cool. So they can actually add some extra stuff that you just possibly wouldn't have known. Uh, Razor Lassar, for example, explains exactly how he does survive the submarine thing. That sort of stuff. So if you're ever interested, then the Razor Lassar novel will tell you that. that is he still stuff. superfluous? Yes, <laughs> yes, he is. Um, and also, it also explains exactly why does he, why do he and Bella hate each other? I think the film tells you all that you need to know, but, <laughs> but it also then gives you the exact reasoning for it, and so you know stuff like that. So. Yeah, and sort of in authors, uh, there is there is some sort of classic authors that have uh, you know made a name for themselves doing sort of novelizations. I mean, the the stigma of novelizations have sort of has uh, lifted quite substantially in uh, recent years, but, but they weren't held in all that much high regard towards uh, you know earlier stages. But uh, one such author is, of course, Alan Dean Foster, 
Um, pretty much the novelization writer. <laughs> and, uh, and he's written other stuff as well, to be fair. Um, but yeah, he's pretty, yeah, much, yeah, he's he pretty had, much the he, man. He does have a career outside of novelizations. Yes. Pippin Flick's novels. Um, he writes mainly the science fiction adaptations. Yeah. Also, um, what, I, what I sort of found fascinating when I was researching this stuff is the James Bond novels mm. are an interesting beast. Because yep. you've got Ian Fleming's original novel, uh, mm-hmm. say for The Spy Who Loved Me, mm-hmm. which is substantially different to the film version. Yep. So oh, they yes. then release a novelization of the film version, and they called it uh, James Bond, comma, The Spy Who Loved Me. And uh, strangely enough, what I, found, I, just, I found this story fascinating, but Ian Fleming novelized one of the films and was then sued for plagiarism. <laughs> Even though they're his characters. It is, is, I don't know. You mean Thunderball? Oh yeah, Thunderball. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. That's a bit different. Yeah. Because that that's more along the lines of say R.C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick. Yes. Um, in which he and Kevin McClory um, were. This was back before um, uh, Connery. Had, this is back back before Connery. Um, had, it was started making the Bond films. Mm-hmm. Um, back when the rights were still up in the air, he, he and Kevin McClory had gotten together to. Um, uh, to create a new Bond film, you know, one to do a Bond thing simultaneously, make the film and have the novel have the novelization for the film come out at the same time. The novelization was going to be written by Ian Fleming, and he had mm. input into the script if he wasn't co-script writer. But the film fell through. But Ian Fleming went ahead and he wrote the Thunderball book. Right. What I don't think he did at the time though was he didn't give Kevin McClory a, oh. a you know a byline. Yes. Um, and so that gave Kevin McClory the need to a sue Bond sue Fleming in the first place, but then attempt to get his own Bond franchise up and running. Which the only time he was he's done it several times, the only time he was successful was with Never Say Never Again. Yeah. And that was the only time that he got it up. That didn't do very well that film. No. Oh, um, okay, that makes a lot more, more um, sense then. But yeah, no, I had the same thing. He him trying to get up a James Bond film using a character that he actually didn't create. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, Thank you. That, that makes a lot more sense yeah. than how I, than than, uh, than what I read. And yeah, as you mentioned, the Stanley Kubrick Arthur C. Clarke two thousand one, mm. which uh, we'll delve into a little bit later with uh, Retro. But anyway, so that's that's basically that's novelizations. That's essentially what it is. You don't like them? Please explain. Okay, I've got to be careful here because part of this is some of that elitist stigma. <laughs> some of it is that elitist stigma that um, you were talking about. Yeah. As in, there is a oh, it's a novel. I can't, I can't deny that that's what's that's what's partly what's going on there. Right. Um, and I, I don't, I don't make a point of reading, even reading comic adaptations. Um, certainly these days, as a kid, I read, I think I read the Batman. Someone read the Batman comic book adaptation, which is what it was. Mm. Same thing with all of them. It was just sort of a cheap reflection of the um, of the movie, mm. and I wasn't really feeling I get much more in there. Um, the one where I really stopped was I read the novelization for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The novel novelization. The novelization. Or the comic? No, not oh, okay. the comic. Oh, right. Because the comic is the co- the comic that Disney did in the nineties is actually not too bad. Yeah. But that's it's an extension of the yeah. world. You know, it's the further adventures of Roger Rabbit. Um, whereas you know, Roger Rabbit itself is based on who censored Roger Rabbit. Now that's not what this was. This was an actual Who Framed Roger Rabbit novelization. I don't remember the author's name. Um, I remember it had a yellow cover um, right. with uh, a, a still of the of the bit where Eddie is trying to get um, he and Roger out of the handcuffs. Gotcha. And I just remember thinking, this is just at you know as a ten year old when I read the novelization several years after the film, 
um, just going, this is cheap, and you know all the stuff that I really loved it, but loved in the film just doesn't seem to be all that well replicated. Hmm. Okay. Um, and yeah, for, so as an element, no, the I don't really, you know, what I what I enjoy about all the films are actually in the films, um, and I don't need to re- to have um, cheap retellings, I guess. Hmm. Um, the one that, I, that I've always sort of been curious about is The Abyss, because James Cameron actually made a point of trying to get Austin Scott Card mm-hmm. to adapt it, because he himself um, hated the Terminator novelization mm. um, and wanted, you know, didn't want uh, just a cheap knockoff replicating what had gone on screen, wanted an author to come in, an actual author to come in and go, well, this is what, um, you know, flesh, thing, flesh things out so that it actually read less like a novelization and more like an actual novel. Yeah. So it could oh, stand... if you want to borrow it, it's actually really good. Uh, at some point, hmm. yeah. Um, but uh, that, that's one of the few times where I think someone's going to do it. I've just, they just don't interest me. Yeah. Um, because I don't feel like I'm reading a separate, a separate thing. I feel like I'm just reading a, a knockoff of something which is actually meant to be viewed rather than read, if that yeah. makes sense. makes perfect sense. Different, you know, there are you know, things like some of the Star Wars tie-ins, which I which I don't read now, but I did read way back when, is, is different because that's continuing the adventures of Luke Skywalker. Yeah. Um, and it's creating its own thing. It's creating a new universe. Whereas I haven't read I haven't read any of the Star Wars novelizations hmm. for that reason. Okay. Mm. Interesting. All like right. I said, I can't quite I can't quite deny the stigma attached. Yeah. Because that would be untrue and incorrect for me to do so. But it's not just that. No, it is just having read some of this stuff and going. I'm just not interested, really. All right. So for me, it's a case of not so much the stigma because I I don't really have that problem. But for me, it's a case of I've seen the film. Yeah. I don't really then need to read the film when I could actually just go and read something else, like a, an, another completely separate story. And I know that sometimes the novelizations will have extra bits in them and things like that, but I don't really care. Hmm. Um, you know, what I'm given on the screen is what I'm given, and I'm happy with that. Um, when I was younger, I did make an exception for the Doctor Who novelizations because a lot of the time they could do the stuff that the BBC budget wouldn't allow the show to do. <laughs> right. So monsters in those books would often be actually quite terrifying. Yeah. Then you'd see the episode and it'd be this clumsily put together blob of like inflatable balloons or whatever. <laughs> Some cellophane. Um, yeah, exactly. So so I, I did read a lot of the Doctor Who novelizations, cool. But also because back then you couldn't see a lot of the episodes because they were just never shown like especially the the you know the patrick Troughton and and uh william hartnell episodes mm. were never shown on australian television so sometimes that was the only way to get the stories um but generally speaking i'm just not interested in reading novelizations interesting yeah um i quite like novelizations and like with any other art form there are really good ones yeah. and there are really bad ones but i generally go back and read them for the reasons you said before, I, I want to. Often it's because I've got unanswered questions and I want to see if the novelization covers. And sometimes I've just enjoyed the film so much I want to be re immersed in that universe. And then the novelization generally expands that universe. Hmm. And I do like to, the comparisons. Um, one of the ones I really enjoyed 10, 15 years ago maybe is this uh, I bought the three volumes of the Star Trek stories. Re, well, the scripts retold as stories by James Blish, 
James mm. Bush is a, a, an outstanding science fiction author in his own right. Yeah. And he's yeah. turned each story into a, a beautiful, short science fiction story. Mm. Um, and then really reads beautifully. So, uh, And it's a just it was just a good way to delve into Star Trek because at that point I'd seen Star Trek, the original series, sporadically repeated over the years, but I've never seen like... From beginning to end, like the full collection, and this was a way I could do it without spending a huge amount of money on buying all the videos. Because at the time it would have been video, mm. and which would now be uh, yes. redundant. The good old days. Yes, um, and, and yeah, it's, the, it's limited to shelf space. Three books fit up there quite nicely. So, um, but I've always enjoyed reading novelizations and books based on films and shows that I've liked because I can, you know, if they're written well, if they're done well, you can. Mm hear the characters in your head, you can see them in your mind's screen. Um, and it's and, and as Richard said, oftentimes I can put a lot more into a novel that they can't actually put into a film or a TV show because of budgetary considerations, whereas all you need with a novel is your imagination. Yeah. And you, you don't, there's no one ever says, oh, geez, my imagination's got poor CGI. <laughs> <laughs> You're the master of the episode quotes. It's <laughs> good. All right, cool. Well, as part of this exercise, um, uh, asked each person to pick a novelization and from whatever, you know, TV, game, radio, movie, whatever the case would be. Actually, originally, in full disclosure, I originally said film, uh, but uh, Luke opened my eyes to the poss- other possibilities. Um, so, so I'm going to go first. Because it's my thing. Uh, I chose... Uh, As is your want. <laughs> and, and you said last time you didn't want to go last anymore. Yeah, that's right. God damn it, I'm going for it. <laughs> uh, so I chose... Uh, so like I said uh, before when I was talking, um, I actually chose uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens uh, by the, the the great Ellen Dean Foster. Um, and mainly because, yeah, I found the, I found the, the movie wanting. story-wise kind of wanting. <laughs> um, so I was hoping that it would do that sort of stuff, the same sort of stuff that Star Wars... Actually, more like what Return of the Jedi does. There was a scene in Return of the Jedi where, with Obi-Wan, it's ghosts. Yep. It reveals a whole lot of stuff. reveals that Obi-Wan, Owen Lars is his... Is his, uh, is his it says that Owen Lars is his brother, that, uh, that uh, Luke and Leia were four years old when... Anakin becomes Vader, <laughs> that uh, and and introduced the concept of Anakin and Obi Wan having a fight and Anakin falling into a vat of lava, which is what causes him to eventually become Darth Vader. Yeah. Um, so you know a whole bunch of stuff like that. So so, was, so Owen Lars is Luke's brother or Obi Wan's? It's Obi Wan's brother. Gotcha. So I was hoping for you know sort of scenes like that, and uh, I must admit I was uh, mainly for a little bit more um, Kylo. Because I, I think Kylo's fascinating. I just, you know, a little bit more Kylo would have been cool. Um, I mean, I thought he was fascinating on screen, and I, a little bit more in the novel itself would be good. But unfortunately, um, there's really not a lot. In fact, the in fact the novel is actually not quite as fleshed out as the film is, which is bizarre. Oh no! When you think about it, um, so it does it does help explain a couple of the Mary Sue elements of Ray. Which I appreciated because it makes her less of a Mary Sue. It's also got a little bit of uh, inner BB-8 monologue, which is pretty cool. Um, but uh, very little else. In fact, it's it's actually missing some of the, it's actually missing some of the stuff in terms of the fights, uh, where you know, like the awesome element of uh, what, I, what I thought it was awesome anyway. The you know Kylo hitting his wound, essentially. So. Hitting his wound to sort of pump himself up. You realise it's a podcast. They can't see which side you're into. Well, I had to get a picture in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I was hitting the wrong side. Um, yeah, that sort of stuff. I loved that stuff, that scene in the, in the film. I was like, this, yeah, this guy is, is awesome. Um, doesn't have any of that, in fact. Um, 
and actually, if anything, makes it makes him even look even more <laughs> like why does he get beaten so easily? Um, that sort of stuff. Uh, and also, the other thing is, uh, it sort of it explains a lot more Ray's vision when she picks up the lightsaber. So it actually, although I thought it was quite obvious what was going on, but it sort of it explains exactly what is going on, and so that's uh, a little bit better. Um, but then, of course, you know, in terms of you know, they're not going to reveal anything, so it still doesn't tell you who all the other knights are. You know, and you know the grave that Luke is standing at, the, the little shriny thing, that sort of stuff. And could that also be what hampers it? The fact that yeah, you know, uh, uh, the novelization, I mean, um, the fact that Alan Dean Foster probably can't write that's exactly too much because yeah. I think I think it he's very be contradicted he's, later on. He's being well, I think no, I think it's not necessarily contradictory. I just think he's he's been intentionally restrained right. yeah. from revealing certain things, and I just I've, I find that kind of disheartening mm. you know what I mean so in the end it wasn't very good um, so actually because I, I found that so disheartening and I read through it so quickly because Dead Devil hadn't come out yet um, I, <laughs> actually, I, actually went, I actually went back and reread one of the others because I thought well, I mean I've got to do something more um, and I was bored so I reread uh, E.T. the E.T. novelization and uh, that's actually a lot of fun the E.T. because it's actually majority of it is from his point of view mm. which you never get to see mm. I mean you get I mean the, he's, he's empathic link with um, Elliot. Elliot is pretty much all you get. Mm. Um, so one of the aspects of the AT novelizations that I really liked was um, he's in love with Elliot's mother, which is never pointed out all that well in the film. There's a little, there's, there's certain elements of it where he sort of is in sort of entranced. Whenever she's, he sort of, she's, he sort of, he sort of like sort of sneakily sort of looks at her when she's doing sort of stuff around the house mm. and stuff. Uh, but it's because it's from his point of view, it points out that he's actually in love with her, and he calls oh. her, the, he calls her the willow creature. Um, um, or the willow, or the willow creature, or the willow spirit, or something to that effect. Because she's um, tall and willowy. Um, yeah, willow creature. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and he, he watches her while she sleeps. And that's creepy, and, man. Uh, yeah, yeah it's it actually kind of creepy. <laughs> he does. He does a lot more looking through windows than he does in the actual film. So, um, <laughs> the ET's a peaking time, is what you're saying? No, yeah, well, it's she's not, not PT. She's not. Oh, physique. She's not naked or anything. It's still a kids' book. Um, but you know, he's still. I, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, but. <laughs> If you're not going out with somebody and you're sitting around watching them sleep, that's creepy. It is creepy. Look, I'm not trying to make excuses. Even if you are going out with them and you're sitting there watching them sleep, that is creepy. Oh, it really? can be. Is that? Is that? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You feel that way. It can be nice though. Like you know, like when Waldo films you and puts you on the internet. <laughs> anyway, whatever. Um, so that was yeah. The novelization was written by William Kotzwinkle, who then went on to write uh, the sequel, which never ended up getting made. They were actually they did have plans to make a sequel called. Uh, the Green Planet, and mm. so, but that did get published. Though. Um, but he there yeah, he wrote the novelization and published it. Mm. Um, yeah, which is awful. Do you remember starting off reading it, going, "Oh, did you? Yeah, it's bad." Like years ago, I would go on. <laughs> what am I reading? <laughs> it's it's really really terrible. Um, but anyway, there you go. Let's go next. Okay. Okay. All right. So I chose Star Trek Nemesis, which was novelized by J. M. Dillard. Um, the original story by John Logan, Rick Berman, and Brent Spiner. Screenplay by John Logan. And Star Trek, of course, created by Gene Roddenberry. Not <laughs> <laughs> like how you chucked that in. It said that, so I'll <laughs> yeah, throw it in. Um, now, there are a number of reasons I went back to read this novelization. Having seen Star Trek Nemesis, my initial impression was like I quite liked it, but then uh, thinking about it, it left me with a quite a number of unanswered questions. Um, the, for, the first and forefront in my mind was, what was Wesley Crusher doing at the wedding? Yeah. <laughs> and at first it didn't even occur to me that Wesley was there. I, I thought that we went, 
you know, it spanned across the guests at the table. And because his face is so familiar, it didn't seem out of place. And then I thought five minutes later, hang on, was that Wesley Crusher? Mm. <laughs> so, you know, I went to Google Wesley Crusher, Star Trek Nemesis. There I was, Wesley Crusher. So, mm. What are you doing in the movie? And then I started thinking about the movie. It's just like the premise was, was quite interesting. A clone of Jean-Luc Picard brought up on uh, the Romulus, uh, not, not Romulus, but Remus, mm. which is a planet we hadn't heard of much in the Star Trek universe, and the, the Remans sounded quite fascinating. So it could have... I became more and more frustrated with the film that it could have been quite good, mm. but wasn't, mm. especially annoyed by the super data scene. I mean, yeah. there are plenty of ways you could have got data over to the other ship. You didn't have to be flying through space to do that. <laughs> Quite frustrating. Uh, it just, I mean, it looked cool, but it was ridiculous for Star Trek. This is not Superman film. Yeah, yeah, I agree fully with that. Yeah. And to get back to your point about wanting to, you know, find out, yeah, having so many unanswered questions. This was meant to be, that was meant to be the film that meant to uh, meant to answer, answer the all the questions that have been building up in next because gen. Because it's a, I mean, it's the last next gen film. We're not going to get another one. They're all far too old now. Mm. Although. Patrick Stewart looks the same. <laughs> <laughs> but they've all, the rest of them have all caught up to him. Yeah. <laughs> the, and, you know, a couple of them are not, you don't um, possess the uh, the physique that they did once upon a time. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah but, uh, I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't but just have them as older people. Mm. Right? But anyway, um, so I wanted to read the book thinking it might flesh out some of these questions I had in my mind. Um, and it does to a certain degree. Like, it doesn't really explain... Um, why Wesley's come back to Starfleet because uh, the last time we see him in Next Generation he's gone off to travel the universe with the Traveller mm. the creepy alien guy <laughs> that episode's so creepy um, it's like he's groomed and so um, we we he, we find out in the novelisation because in the movie he doesn't even get a line but in the novelisation um, he gets to talk to it with the captain and we find out that he's actually going to be on the Titan with Riker which turns out later is not canon Anymore because uh, other I think uh, other novelizations that have the title in later there's no Wesley Crusher, mm. but anyway, so Wesley turns out to be a lieutenant in Starfleet and he's going to uh, serve under Captain Riker on the Titan. Right, and that's the last we hear of him for the rest of the book. There's a few instances in the movie with Worf that I didn't quite figure out what was going on there, and it turned out that even though it wasn't written into the novelization, it was explained in the um, introduction by the the script writer, that there was a whole subplot involving Worf coming to terms with dealing with Romulans as individuals rather than just a race he hates because they decimated his family at Kitima. Um, So that would have been interesting to weave into the storyline a little bit. But basically the novel pretty much followed the movie. It it didn't really change a whole lot. They still had the super data scene and the the whole B4 thing. It did bring back some of the things that I really enjoyed about the film so I I wasn't so frustrated and angry but there was quite a lot, there's quite a lot of Trek humour in there that I really like like when they're looking for B4 on the planet and um, Data says that this appears to be a robotic arm and Worf says, well, very astute. (laughs) In his Worf gruff manner. Um, Quite a a few uh, nice one-liners there that you you do get in Trek sometimes. So they were, it it didn't answer all the questions I had, but it did. Uh, on one hand, it, it reinforced my frustration that the story could have been so much better. I mean, I do think that once Shinzon started aging, hmm. they should have made him look more like Patrick Stewart. 
rather than just do the fame thing. Mm. Um, it was frustrating that they had such a quality cast. I mean, they had Patrick Stewart, of course, and all the next-gen cast, but they also had um, Tom Hardy and Ron Perlman, mm. but they didn't have much to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so on the one hand, it sort of increased that frustration. On the other hand, it sort of uh, reminded me of the stuff that I actually did enjoy about the film, so mm. it wasn't a whole total disaster. Um, so, yeah, I think it was well worth reading the novelisation, just to, you know, for those reasons. Cool. But I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's the best book I've ever read, you know, and I probably, <laughs> if I had to rate it, it maybe get a two and a half. Oh, I didn't even bother reading, uh, reading, reading Falls of Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> Next. Okay, well, I kind of uh, tied this in with, you know, the other Dust Jacket stuff I'm doing. Oh. Um, I chose uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, ranked number eight on uh, Sci-Fi List's Very clever. greatest science Sci-Fi fiction. Sci-Fi List book and a film novelization. Absolutely. Um, and this one, this one actually, this one's actually a little bit different to the the kind of, the books that you guys have been talking about. In that, it was actually being written concurrently with the script. Mm. with the screenplay in that um, Clark and Kubrick were actually developing both the screenplay and the novel together at the same time. Although, you know, Kubrick's influence on the novel uh, you know, drifted away after a while because he was focused on the film and so Clark is actually listed as the sole writer of the of the novel. It was published in 1968, the same year that uh, the film was released, obviously. And, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting beast. Um, now, listeners will know how much I absolutely love 2001 as a film. Mm. Um, and look, this, this, the novel follows the same, I guess, basic story structure. It begins with the apes. We then go to the American scientists on the moon. Doesn't it give the apes some sort of, like, like not really necessarily names, but like personalities? It does. No, no, it gives them yeah. names. Oh, um, it does give them names, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, look, I'll, I'll deal with the similarities ah, first, okay, yeah. Cool. So, so, you know, we, we go from the apes to uh, Haywood Floyd uh, travelling to the moon where the monolith is discovered, and uh, then we we then move to the Discovery 1 mission, uh, which, which is, is actually going to one of the moons of Saturn yeah. here rather than Jupiter. Um, and we do, yeah, you do the hell, the hell nine thousand story, yeah. and and there are differences there, and um, then obviously, then uh, Dave Bowman's trip into the monolith to finish the film, giant space baby, to become yes, to become the star child. <laughs> um, what's yes. what's noticing? There are there are plot differences. Obviously, the one we mentioned with Saturn. Um, well, the Saturn, the Saturn change was because, um, the visual effects guy, yeah. uh, just didn't like the way it looked. Yeah. Saturn so didn't, they, they just, didn't just get, couldn't, couldn't get the rings yeah, to work. Yeah. And the same with the, in, uh, the novel, the monolith is actually crystalline and see-through. It actually goes black at one point, but apparently that, oh, that's right, yeah. that didn't film. They, they, they couldn't get the look of it right either. So they just went with the solid block, block, monolith, right. which is, Fantastic choice on that part. That's think. actually a cool scene, though, when it goes black because they all everybody harmonically yeah. assumes something's wrong. Yeah, exactly. And that was um, <laughs> There are there are other little minor differences. Um, Hell actually blows the airlock to kill the other the the you know the the cryogenically frozen other members of the crew and almost kills Dave along that. Whereas you know Dave goes out to rescue Frank and then Hell just bumps him off quietly whilst whilst no one's around in the in the film. Um, well, there's a couple of major differences, um, though, that I, that I noticed reading this. First of all, 
the novel is far more, I guess, fatalistic about the fate of humanity. Like the Cold War is happening. They're like it's fifteen years from now, from this point. Uh, this is nineteen ninety nine. This is during the Floyd period of the of the novel. It's like in fifteen years we're going to run out of resources. There's the potential for nuclear disaster, and and so the the novel is kind of like we've we've got to go through this this next evolutionary step or else we're screwed. Whereas the film has a little bit more awe and wonder to what's going on. I mean, there's, there's suggestions. You, you have the scene with Floyd uh, in the film where they're not telling the Russians what's going on, but, but you don't have that real sense of fatalism that the book has. Um, so much so that when, when Dave goes through his little trip and comes back as the star child, at the end of the novel, he actually returns to Earth and destroys an orbital nuclear missile platform. Which really? So he comes back. He comes back as the star child. As a star child to Earth, blows up an orbital nuclear. As a statement. Platform. Yeah, and then and you, you don't really. There's no real follow up on that. Apparently, Does he say why? No, apparently it's not. It's not. There's no real follow up on that until you get to Odyssey Two, the 2010 novel. Yeah. I don't remember much of it, but I, I do remember feeling really frustrated at the end of 2001, and it's I do like, a lot of Clark novels. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, didn't wrap it up! It, there's, there's that standard sense that, that Clark had, really has it at this point, and then throughout later is clear. It's, it's very cold, there's a lot of hard science, a lot of descriptions about space travel and what it involves and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but his writing's but, engaging, it's, I, I find, don't find that much of a problem. I, I found that once it actually got like I, I wasn't engaged in the early section of the book in the in the ape section of the book at all. Um, there's a lot it goes into a lot more detail and and a lot more is explained in this book. You know, here's what's going on. Here's the monolith. Here's how it's you know creating the next evolutionary step for the apes. Here's you know um and and the trip the trip through. Does it explain where the monolith comes from? Space aliens that are evolving us. Right. Yeah. Aliens are evolving issues because they just feel the edge? Well, I mean, it, it's not explicitly stated as to right. why. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that if you it, get into it, explicitly yeah. stated? It, it may, like I said, I haven't followed through. It may be in 2010, 2061, or 3001. But, I don't remember um, if it was in 2010. Yeah. Um, also, there's, um, yeah, there's things like um, Hell... Hal's reason for why he's going through what he's going through is explicitly stated here in that he has to lie about what the mission is actually about. And that causes a, a programming conflict within him that leads him to do what he does. So so it, it, it's, it's much more, here's exactly what's going on. You know, like it doesn't have that kind of, um, you know, leave it to yourself to develop what you think is going on kind of thing. That's cool. Yeah. He um, drives himself mad. Well, the, the, well it's, 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 it's more a programming programming logic causes him to ask the questions. There's not that compute. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, um, I just thought it was intentional, you know, a la Nostromo and and Wayland Yutani, the corporation. Well, I, I always read the the movie version of it being, you know, humanity has gotten to a point where they're very cold and static and not evolving. Hell is a new life form, and so therefore Hell is learning, and and so he's the one that's actually evolving in the film. And yes, there are problems with that, conflicts with that, because he's being—he's—he's he's basically new, and has just gained life and sentience. But at the same time, he's being asked to think like an adult, and so that's how I always interpret it. Oh, um, there you go. You know, but like I said, you don't need to interpret anything here. Um, <laughs> well, there is there is a line. And no need for a different. There is a line. <laughs> there is a line, and I'm going to bring this up because um, it's actually James Blish. 
who we've, we've been talking about, said that um, that Clark's narrative provided essential elements that Kubrick either ignored or glossed over or made more ambigu- ambiguous. And he said that the novel has very little of the poetry of the picture and lacks most of the picture's strengths, but that it has to be read before one can understand the picture. Now, I actually agree with him on the first part of that. No, I disagree it with lacks the poetry, but I completely disagree with the scene because I've only read the book like, this is my first time reading the book. Right. And I have, you know, my ideas of what's going on in the film. But, but like I said, this is very much spelled out for you in that, in that hard science-y kind of way that, yeah. that Clark was You can see writing. what he's saying, though. If you, if you wanted to understand the film the way Clark intended, then you would have yeah. to read the book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, um, yeah, I have to say I was, I was a little disappointed in the book because of that. It doesn't have that sense of awe and wonder that mm. the film gives me. And um, actually, the, the the trip through the monolith is is interesting in the book. It's very different to, um, and it doesn't have that as much of that weird trippy thing. It's like he goes into the monolith and he sort of zaps to this, I guess, what would you call it? Like a like a crossroads point. Hmm. And all these other ships are zapping through as well, suggesting that whoever created the monoliths have done this across the universe uh, to countless life forms. And then it's into the hotel room. So, yeah, so if, if you want explanations, like everything spelled out for you if you have seen the film, then I would recommend the novel. All right, cool. Hey, look. Um, yes, yeah, so I have chosen um, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I didn't review, get to review it when it was review, when you guys reviewed it two or three years ago because I was absent for that um, episode. And the other one, this is, this is probably one of the one novelisation that I could think of that I could actually do without, you know, infuriating myself even further. The book is based on um, part of, on the first half of the very first series of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio show. Um, both are written by Douglas Adams. Um, the radio show was a six-episode comedy show telling the, um, the journey of Arthur Dent from the moment where his planet is, is um, destroyed by the Vogons through space and time until he ends up in stranded in with his friend um, Fort Prefect on prehistoric Earth with um, a group of rather incompetent aliens. Hmm. Um, there was a second series done after that called the Secondary Phase, which actually saw Arthur and Ford uh, actually leave um, prehistoric Earth via different means than what they do in the Tertiary Phase, and I'll explain what all this means in a moment, um, to help stop um, a, a, an, intergalactic, a, an intergalactic empire called the Frogstar Federation um, from um, basically taking over the galaxy. That, in and, of, in and of itself, ends with Arthur being extremely annoyed at, um, say, Ford Beeblebrocks for a start, and by association, Ford Prefect, stealing one of the ships that they have. I think, if memory serves me correctly, it is, in fact, the Heart of Gold and zooms off into space, and his adventures are never chronicled in radio format ever again until Dirk Maggs does the radio, the radio adaptations of the, of the last three Douglas Adams novels. Now, in between that, of course, you get Douglas Adams uh, writing The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy books and making a truckload of money off them. The first book is, in, like I said, is, the first, is an adaptation of the first three episodes, so from the moment where so the books come after the radio the books show, books come yeah. after, much after the radio yeah. show. Well, there you go. And the books only take you. The first book only takes you up till um, 
the uh, up, up until after the destruction of Magrathia. So he, you know, he sees, um, deep, you know, he meets Deep Thought. He, he meets the um, the people who tell him about Deep Thought. He meets um, Lali Bardfast, hmm. and you know, you have the um, the altercation between um, the four of them and the two uh, galactic right. cops attempting to bring Zayford Beetlebrox in. Right. Um, and then the store, the planet is destroyed, and then it ends with them going off to the idea being that they're going to go off to the rest, um, to Milliways, the restaurant at the end of the universe. Mm. However... The TV show or the radio show? Sorry, the radio show. Sorry, of yeah. the radio show. Because the, t- the, ra- the TV show follows the same structure as the radio show. I'm so yeah. confused. Every version is different. Yeah, every version <laughs> yeah. is very different. Yeah, I think that's the, the important the, thing to remember. The similarity here. between... The, 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 the closest ones are the radio show and the TV show. And yeah. even then, you know, the TV show borrows from the radio show, but borrows from the books as well. Then, just to make things even more confusing, the restaurant at the end of the universe, which is book two, opens up with all the stuff that happens in the secondary phase. Mm. So, yeah. but doesn't open, but not with Ford and uh, Ford and Arthur on Earth because that hasn't happened in the books yet. But they do have all the stuff involving the Frog Star, um, the Frog Star civilization, mm. and all the conflicts there, leading up to eventually getting to Millieways, yeah. <laughs> and then finishing off the rest of. The first um, half, the, the, the second half of the very first series. Are you confused yet? No. Because eventually they get to prehistoric Earth, right? Eventually they get to prehistoric Earth. Isn't he, yeah. The third he's, in a, book. he's in a cave at some point? Yes. Right. Um, which is the start of the third book. But okay. um, so, so, focusing on the adaptation of the first one, um, I, love, I love Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And I love which the version? Um, basically, every version that I've ever read and watched and listened to. With the exception of the film, I liked the film. Okay, I couldn't stand the film. <laughs> right. The problem I have with the book, and it does come back to you know having listened to the radio show first, is that ultimately I kind of felt that the story was incomplete. Okay. In that it's still very funny, and all the books, um, little asides and comments, and world comments about the universe and the world building that it does are all very prevalent. And Arthur is a great character, and Ford is a great character. You get a bit more about Xavier. You get a bit more in the the novelization about how Zaphod steals the heart of gold mm. um, to begin with, yeah. and some of the machinations he gets up he gets up to. But yeah, feel, given the way that the radio show ends, which I had listened to first, um, I always felt that you know the first book kind of cuts it a bit short, and that there's more to the actual story. Given that Arthur's quest is actually to work out the um, the answer to the question. Um, so the question that will explain the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Well, isn't his initial quest just to find a cup of tea? It is to find a cup of tea. <laughs> um, but, you know... Get so you read the book after in sequence of them coming out, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Right, I, so you I read the book, book and then you didn't read the next book until it came out? No, 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 sorry. Let me rephrase that. Um, I, read the books in, I read the books in sequence, but I read them after reading... After listening to right, but you have read them. One. But you've read them. You've always read them as a as the trilogy in four parts, right? Yeah, or right. a quadrilogy in five parts. Right. Oh, I, I ignore the other ones. Um, um, so, all right, cool. All right, sweet. So um, then, but you think the first book ends too soon? Yeah, okay. but the, but the it, it ends rather abruptly. It ends rather abruptly. But I also yeah. take into consideration that's you know having listened to the radio show first and knowing where the. Yeah, the story yeah. actually is meant to so end. I didn't think it ended abruptly, but I read the books before I mm. heard the radio show. So I, I, I can imagine people who are reading them when they were when they were being published would mm. think that. Yeah, I can More, definitely see that. But I've always read them as mm. the 
trilogy. Mm. But most people, at least, as would disagree with me because they haven't listened to the radio show. Gotcha. They would have. So I've never listened to the radio show. The, the oh, I've got it if you want to. It's awesome. The radio show is brilliant. It's one of the best radio shows um, I think that's ever been done. Okay. Because um, it manages to be both funny, poignant, um, and incisive. And I think yeah. Douglas Adams is probably one of the greatest philosophers to ever have lived. Wow, uh, cool. that's a you know what cool. the greatest crime of all this is is Douglas Adams was planning to write a Doctor Who movie. Yeah. Yes, I know, and not and not Sharda. Um, Sharda's really not that good. Let's, uh, I don't know why it gets so much praise I because like it's it, because it's a lost it's a lost yeah. story written by Douglas Adams. But it's, yeah. it's it's not it's not one of his greatest works. Let's be honest. Well, he's no, like, but it, it it would also depend on what they did when they actually filmed it. Yeah, like I'd love to have actually seen Sharda as an episode. Um, mm. To make things even more confusing, when Dirk Maggs um, decided to adapt the other books, he had to keep it in sequence. So instead of the sec- instead of trying to pick up where the secondary phase leaves off, he's going with tertiary phase, which does actually pick up with Arthur on prehistoric Earth in the cave. Hmm. So do the books miss some of the stuff the radio play does? No. The yeah. books just tell it in a different sequence. In a different order. Yeah. Okay. Um, right. And then... At- at the very end, he actually does leave a little side to a possible, um, a, par- a parallel universe where Arthur is still on that ship with one of the characters from the um, from the secondary phase. In fact, there are many of those characters now, mm. so he still tries to tie it back into. Um, what did you say the author was um, of the, the later books? Of the, no, of the Douglas Adams has written all the books except for um, and another thing, which is written by Owen Colfer. Yeah. Um, but Dirk Maggs did, who's a writer, a producer, director, writer for radio, um, did the um, the other three, adapted the remaining three Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's novels. Adapted them into what? Radio. 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 The radio. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Trying to, you know, sort of come full circle and bring them back to their original, um, their original format. Okay. Radio. Awesome. Um, <laughs> I, I can see that slightly confused look in Dave's like eyes. <laughs> Like, and it doesn't help that you know he's they're called the tertiary phase, quart, uh, quarterly phase, and quandary phase, in line with the primary and the secondary phase. Mm-hmm. But the secondary phase ends in a much different place to where the tertiary phase opens. Okay, if it's, that makes sense. I would have preferred not to have known this information. <laughs> no, <laughs> ignorance, ignorance was bliss in my case because I mean the story is exactly as as I've read it. Mm. I've read it in the novels. Yeah. yeah, I knew the radio play existed. Yeah, but I just assumed it was the same yeah. story. You're telling me it's no, not now. No, it is. The, it, for the most part, it is the same story. But it's in a told, the, sequence. Just, the one thing that that doesn't really happen, I guess, is um, the visiting to the planet where the bird actually exists, which is in the, is in the radio show, and then Arthur flying flying off in anger hmm. at the end of the secondary phase. I think the easiest way to look at it is just what we're saying. Like, each one is its own thing, yeah. and yeah. just treat it as such. Adams, yeah. Adams himself said there are many different versions, and every single one is different. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Also, is that my head? Yeah, I just for that that you know, I think that in spite of you know my in spite of being a little bit disappointed that the book actually ends abruptly, I think it's a great book. Hmm. Um, I think it is very well written. I don't think that there is a better example of science fiction comedy. Yeah. Um, you know, I love I love Galaxy Quest. I love Red Dwarf, but they don't come close to the Hitchhiker's Guide. Hmm. And that's why Hitchhikers is number four. Mm. Um, sci-fi list, greatest sci-fi books of all time. Cool. So that was our, uh, our little special thing, review thing, special, about novelizations. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed it. Give them a go. 
Don't be like Luke. Well, don't. It should be pointed out. Depending on if you know. Or don't, depending on how crap this was. It should be pointed out, though, that Richard and I did adapt, did talk about probably the two best known adaptations <laughs> yeah. and novelizations yeah, ever. Yeah, you, you both did very well. Um, Turns out that those are the ones that have sort of lived. Occasionally, you know, you do get ones that do live beyond the source, yeah. the original source material. And 2001 and Hitchhikers are probably the two most well known examples mm-hmm. of that. You know, they both have lives um, outside of, you know, the film and the radio show and all the various adaptations. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it helps uh, that in both cases, the author actually tried to carry on the story in novels. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Let's finish up with Coming Soon. In cinemas, April 14th, we get The Boss. No. Just avoid. really appeal to me. Springsteen? <laughs> it was dead out would have been good. So it's, it's, Melissa, it's Melissa McCarthy plays a horrible boss who gets uh, thrown in, pris- in prison for insider trading or some crap. I don't know, who knows. Yeah. Um, and then tries to do like a celebrity makeover of herself to sort of make people think, when she gets out, to think that she's actually a nice person when really she's obviously not. Oh, I do know the one you're talking about. They, um, yeah. they interviewed... Uh, yeah, they interviewed her on... The yeah. Weekly. Charlie, yeah, Charlie yeah. Pickering, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Australia's Will Wheaton. Uh, we also have Wide Open Sky. I don't understand this animosity. <laughs> I will say this. He's an excellent interviewer. He's very good. But I still want him dead. Wide Open Sky. Uh, is, uh, I have no idea. Wide Open Sky. Oh, this is a documentary about about a group of um, kids who have been formed as a choir. Yes, the yeah. choir. That's right. And Yep, Australian documentary yeah. about the Outback Choir. Yeah. And you know, a woman actually attempting to... Uh, people from yes. disparate cultures and possibly you know low socioeconomic yep. cultures and give them something but also being almost almost jk simmons in um whiplash bad she's apparently quite hard on these kids is she yeah so, oh, I, saw well, the, I saw a trailer okay. for it yesterday yeah. and there's a moment she said no you gotta do it again it's like they're all 10 they're 10 <laughs> um, skies and- will open wide <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I'm scared. Um, and we also get, uh, which I believe is the final instalment of the Divergent series, uh, Allegiant. That tumbleweed rolling through right now is my interest in this Divergent series. <laughs> Haven't seen it, don't care to, don't care about the film. Uh, look, at, at least it seems yeah. to feature a uh, you know a strong female protagonist actually doing stuff. Yeah. So I still put it ahead of Twilight. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. They are, I've seen all of them up until this point, and you know, they, you know, they are they are what they are. We're not is, the target they're not trying to be anything else, and yeah, we're not we're yeah. not the target ones. But I mean, that being said, yeah, I mean, you've got some some good actors, a strong female character who's not just there for titillation. Yeah. So I mean, actually, I mean, you know, I applaud it for what it does, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm not going to rush out to go see it. Oh, yeah, if it's getting the right message across to the right people, then great. Yeah. Points to to the filmmakers for that and for the original novel writer exactly whoever that is at least it's not freaking twilight <laughs> that's pretty that's much right. that should be on the poster it's not twilight <laughs> <laughs> better than twilight <laughs> everything's better than twilight that's it episode 190 thank you very much oh thank you oh i think well, thank uh, you for letting me be a part of the experience that is nerd culture podcast i well, like that that touched me deeply in places that we can't reveal. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for me and the crew, Richard. I'm still thanking him. In all the rat ways. Ah, uh, yeah. All right. Luke? 
Yeah. I'll be here next time. <laughs> and Crystal. Very astute. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Bye. You've been listening to NCP. Thank you for being a part of our crew. If you would like to support the show, you can use the Amazon widget on our website to do your Amazon shopping. If you have any feedback, please go to nerdculturepodcast.com forward slash contact us where you will find a list of the many different ways you can interact with us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.